the rest of us will enter into God's Word in the book of Acts chapter 17, and we will begin in verse 22 and go through verse 34. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, we have some provided in the pews, and you can find Acts 17 verse 22. It begins on page 1101 in your pew Bible, and if you don't own a Bible, uh, that Pew Bible is our gift to you. you don't, you're not stealing it from us. We want you to have God's Word um, there in your hands to read every day. And so as you're turning to Acts uh, 17, verse 22, uh, we're skipping over, so we concluded in Acts 16, and so we're skipping part of 17 before we start today. And so just as you're turning, just hear this recap of kind of what's going on. We remember Paul's on his second missionary journey um, he's been in Philippi. We just saw that while in Philippi with Silas, Timothy, and Luke, that there was the conversion of Lydia, the conversion of the slave girl, and the conversion of the jailer there in Philippi. And now they have moved on from Philippi. They then went to Thessalonica, um, which is where we get First and Second Thessalonians, but it's Thessalonica or Thessalonica, uh, depending on your enunciation of it. And From there, they traveled down to Berea, and while in Berea, Silas, Timothy, and Luke get hung up, and they get, um, and and they have some um, issues moving on from there, and so Paul goes ahead of them and continues down to Athens, and while in Athens, Paul's walking around. He sees all of the temples, all the statues, all the altars there in Athens, um, and he starts getting called by various philosophers groups, uh, this babbler, which means that he's just kind of like a a chicken hunting and picking at different things on the ground to take from different things and adding them together. And so that's where we pick up that Paul is in Athens. And so Luke writes, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath, and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of this resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. 
So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius the Arapagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Here ends the reading of the word of God. Let us go to God in prayer. O holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, who is our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We're going to begin today with maybe the most basic question in all of life. What is our purpose? It's this deep existential question that is the beginning of almost all philosophies that exist in the world. What is our purpose? What were we created and designed for? Now, when we go and begin diving into trying to understand our purpose, we see that there are different levels. There's a general purpose for all humankind that exists. And then there's individual purposes. And generally, when we start asking the question, what is our purpose? What were we created for? We're thinking more individualistic. What am I to do with my life? What is my next step? Where am I to go from here? What am I to be doing with what I have been given? But before we can understand an individual purpose in our life, we must fully understand God and the purpose he has in general for all of creation. And God does have a purpose. He has a purpose for all of us. And, and we find that purpose when we read his scripture. We read his word. We see what he, who he is and why and how he has designed us. And in other faith traditions, and, and they have catechism. Who's here is familiar with catechisms? There's, there's a number of you. And, and so for those who don't know, a catechism is a set of teachings used in different uh, Christian faith traditions to raise people up to understand faith and certain doctrines. It's almost the same as having a creed, but a catechism is a question and answer format. So there would be a question and then the person learning would memorize the answer. And in some instances, uh, when you want to come and confess your faith in Christ, you recite the catechism proving that you know the faith. Um, and one such catechism that exists is the Westminster Catechism. And the Westminster Catechism is used a lot in the Presbyterian and Episcopalian world um, within Christianity. And their very first question that is asked of the, of the people that are learning is, what is the chief end of man? So essentially, they're asking the same question, what is our purpose? What is the purpose of man? And the, and the answer that you're to come up with is a man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And then they give scriptural backings for understanding this. And, and so at the very beginning, it's that existential question, what is my purpose? And it's the general purpose from God that we were created and designed to glorify and enjoy God forever. This is our purpose. But there's more to it than that. It's, it's glorifying him and enjoying him. 
But when we read Scripture, we see that it is a knowing God. That it's, we can't glorify Him and we can't enjoy Him if we don't know Him. And so we were designed to know God. Not to know of God, not to know about God, not to have all the technical terms down about who God is, but to know him with a relationship. It's why when Pastor Chris and I get up here, it's the invitation at the end of the service, we, we say, run, don't walk. It's the greatest relationship you will ever have in all of your life, because that's exactly what it is. So in the, in the most famous verse in scripture that almost all of us could quote is John 3.16. And it's, and it's Jesus talking. He says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son so that none shall perish but have everlasting life or eternal life, depending on your translation. Mine says eternal life, so that's where I'm at. So it says eternal life. And so later in the Gospel of John, Jesus unpacks what eternal life is for those around him. And he does so in the midst of a prayer. And it's found in John 17. Now, in this prayer, it's public and it's before people, and it's often called the high priestly prayer. And in this prayer, uh, in verse 3, Jesus says this in his prayers, and this is eternal life. So he's going to define eternal life in the midst of his prayer. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, so that none shall perish, but have eternal life. And Jesus defines eternal life, not as a period of time, not a forever, but he defines eternal life as knowing God. It happens to be forever. It happens to be for eternity. But this eternal life is knowing God. That's how Jesus defines it. And so what is our purpose? Why did Jesus come and give his life? so that we may know God. See, this is the prized jewel of the gospel. We often speak, when we speak of the gospel, of what Christ did, what he accomplished on the cross, which is he took on our sins and gave us his righteousness and his blood was an atonement for our sins and he died so that we may be made right with God, that God's justice is satisfied. And three days later, he rose from the grave. And so we receive forgiveness. We get grace. But that's not the crown jewel of the gospel. So oftentimes we'll say, well, what do you get with salvation? And we'll talk, well, we get into heaven. Well, heaven's just part of it. And so we, we can have forgiveness and grace and get into heaven. But if heaven doesn't come with God... It's not paradise. It's not heaven. So the, the get of the gospel, the prize of the gospel, is we get God with unfettered access because our sin has caused great separation because we've rebelled against God and there's a chasm and God is holy and just. And so the sin must be atoned for, must be paid for. And God, out of his loving, lavish kindness, sends Jesus to take on our sin, it's placed upon him. And he is the great high priest, as it says in Hebrews, where he builds that bridge, that chasm that we created between us and God, that God isn't distant and that Jesus then walks us there so that we have access to God, to know 
God in deep personal relationship. This is the crown jewel of the gospel. It's the great gift that we are designed, created, and purposed to know God. Now, Einstein, a famous thinker of our day or generations past, said one time that anyone who doesn't believe in a cosmic power would be a fool. But we can never know him. Einstein was half right. And he was half wrong. Not too often I get to say Einstein was wrong. So I might wallow in it a bit. Einstein was wrong, half wrong. Anyone is a fool who doesn't believe in a cosmic power, but we can know him. That's our purpose to know him. Because of Christ and what he accomplished on the cross through salvation, that's the vehicle to get us to knowing God, to having that access, to enjoying him, to glorifying him forever. So we can know him. And this is what Paul has come to proclaim to the men of Athens. Athens at this time in centuries past was the intellectual elite center of the universe. It's where all the philosophies came and were born and they lived. And and there were also all the statues and temples and altars to gods. It is said through legend that you could find more gods in Athens than you could find people. And about Paul's era, there's about 10,000 people living in Athens. And so there he is, and, and he's walking around, and he sees all of these idols, and then he comes before the Areopagus. Now, the Areopagus means the hill of Ares, or Mars Hill in Latin, and it is directly in the shadow of the Acropolis in Athens, where the Parthenon for Athena is up at the top and cast its shadow and all of their temples and statues and gods and goddesses and altars are up there along as well throughout the streets. And with all of these altars, Paul comes across one that says to an unknown God. Now the story goes of how that altar appeared in Athens was A, they needed to cover all their bases. Just in case they were unsure, one of their other gods really didn't have it covered. They got it covered with the unknown god. We'll make sacrifice of some sort there. We don't really want to dig much deeper. But the other one was there was a great plague that happened. And during this time, a a man came and said, well, I'm going to release these birds and scatter the sheep. And wherever the sheep go and die, that's where we will kill them and sacrifice them to that god. Well, then there was a group of sheep that just laid down in the middle of nowhere, next to no altar, no temple, no statue. So they sacrificed them and made an altar to the unknown God there in hopes of ending the plague. Now, the Areopagus that Paul is at is both a place and a court. So it, it was called the Court of Areopagus because they initially met there, and this is where all of the great philosophers and thinkers of the time, they got to try out new philosophies when people came around. It's the place where four centuries before Paul, that Socrates was tried and condemned at the court of the Areopagus. And Paul here isn't on trial, for he has come to proclaim the truth about the one true living God before them. He, wants to, he brings this message of how God is robust and majestic 
and all-encompassing, and that he can be known. So Paul comes in with a bit of a hubris. He, he first softens the blow. He goes, I see you're very religious people. I see all of your objects of affection that you worship. We have this one that says the unknown God. I know him. And that's where he begins. And so before all of these elite philosophers and thinkers of the day, before these Gentiles, he comes to say and boast in his knowledge of God. And he tells them about the very nature of God when he evangelizes. He doesn't start with Jesus Christ and what he accomplished. He starts where they are and takes this altar to an unknown God and says, but I know him and you can too. He says in verse 24, he begins telling about it. He goes, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. He reveals here to these these men of Athens at the Areopagus that in the shadow of the Acropolis, he says, this unknown God you worship, that God is the creator of the universe. Lord of heaven and earth. This is who God is. That God is both the personal creator of everything and the Lord of everyone. And that any attempt to localize or to limit God is ludicrous in Paul's view. For God cannot be contained and does not remain in a singular temple built by man For he created man, for he created all the universe. So he says this God, this one true living God is the creator of the universe. And then he goes on and he continues and he says, nor is he served by human hands in verse 25, as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God is not only the creator of the universe, but he is the sustainer of our lives. He gives us our lives. He gives us our breath. He gives us everything. We proclaim this truth every Sunday, whether we realize it or not. For when we gather and we collect an offering, we say God gave us all of these things and we are joyfully, gleefully, cheerfully giving it back to God in recognition that it is his and his alone. So without even saying a word, when we give to God, we're saying we know this is yours. And we do so in response and thanks for what he's given us. God's the creator. He's the sustainer. We depend on God. He doesn't depend on us. We depend on him. And we have a great need for God. We can't do this on our own. So he's told us he's the creator. He's told us he's the sustainer. And now he tells them that God is the ruler of all nations. Right? He continues on here. He said, and he made from one man every nation of mankind in verse 26, to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. He reveals that God is the ruler of all the nations. 
And it's his son, Jesus Christ, that he puts as king of the world. That there is no president, there is no emperor, there is no czar, there is no earthly kings or queens or parliaments or congress or any forms of government that are above Jesus the Christ, our king. For God is the ruler of all nations. Now, God does, is not responsible for the tyranny or the aggression of individual nations or rulers. Yet, both the history and the geography are under his control. He, he said that having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, we can go back in the Old Testament. If y'all want to allot me another hour, we can go back through the Old Testament and we can see how Israel through time in this promised land, and they was very specific as to where the boundaries of Israel would be in the promised land. And then we can see beyond that how God raised up rulers and put them in place at different periods for different times for different reasons. And at other times he allowed or didn't allow them to be attacked their country to be taken over, to be split into separate kingdoms. God is the one who is in control of history and geography. He is the ruler of all nations. But when he tells us he's the ruler of all nations, he also sneaks in there our purpose. Did you catch it? It's right there in verse 27, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, that we would know God. That's our purpose. God's the creator, the sustainer, and the ruler. Why is he all of those things? So that we would know him and enjoy him and glorify him. So he continues on telling us, and he begins by quoting one of their own poets. See, Paul didn't go in there not knowing anything about him. Paul goes in there, quoting a song about Zeus, and then he goes in quoting one of their poets. Paul is keenly aware of how intellectually smart and with it they are. And, and he says, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. He reveals that God is our Father, our good, good Father. And Jesus reveals this as well. In his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, it's at the end of the chapter 5 in your Bibles. There he begins telling us to love your enemies. And when he gets to the very end, he says, So be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. He didn't say as my father in heaven is perfect. He says as your father in heaven is perfect because God is our father and, and it, with it carries the connotations not of uh, what we have experienced with earthly fathers, but everything that is good and right with the office of fatherhood, God exemplifies for us that as father, he should be obeyed and his word followed. But also as father, he is one who cares for his children and with great love and concern for us. That as father, he both has a, a authority in our lives, but also deals lovingly with us. 
that he exacts obedience from us, but lavishes us with kindness. We hear Paul's words, but while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, proving God's love for us. This is a father's love for his children. This is the good, good father. Now, Paul could have stopped here. And in modern day, we, in these days, we, we might have stopped. We would have said, that's a good, robust, majestic picture of God. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on to tell us that God is the judge of the world. So he's the creator, the sustainer, the ruler, the father, and ultimately the judge. Now, there was a day in evangelism here in the United States that we began with the judgment from God that you may have knocked on, someone may have knocked on your door or ran into them in the streets and said, if you were to die today, do you know where you are going? Which implies, do you understand where you fall in line with judgment? Now, for various reasons, it's fallen out of favor to begin evangelism with that for good reasons and bad reasons. Some of the reasons being that it provokes an emotional response based out of fear instead of coming to a knowledge of the truth. But it is part of who God is. See, he, he tells us here in verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked. So he's saying the age of ignorance is over. There's no more excuse for not knowing God, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man, that's Jesus, whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Here at the very end, Paul goes in to say, Jesus has come to be the judge. He was resurrected from the dead, and that's how we were given assurance that he's the judge. And he echoes what Peter had said just a few chapters ago in chapter 10 of Acts. Peter is there at Cornelius' house, the, the Roman centurion. And while there in verse 42, he says what Jesus told him. He goes, and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. That when we talk about God as judge of the world, the judgment will be universal. It's of the living and the dead, the high and the lowly. No one escapes judgment. But for those who are in Christ Jesus, we have a sure hope. For he has taken our sins to the cross and atoned for them. And we are made right before God, adopted as children, co-heirs with Christ to the promise of resurrection, that our names are written in Lamb's book of life. But everyone comes and will be judged. And for those whose names are not in the Lamb's book of life will be judged on the lives they led, on the deeds they did and didn't do. For in this judgment, it will be righteous. All secrets will be revealed. There will be no miscarriage of judgment. There will be no protest or appeals made to it. His word is final. And the day has been set. And the judge is there. And it's coming. But you have a judge who surrendered his life 
that you may have eternal life, a crown jewel. And that's found in Jesus. See, in Jeremiah 23, or Jeremiah 9, the prophet Jeremiah, he says this. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. Is Jeremiah writing to us today? I mean, you want to talk about God's unchanging word and, and, and depravity of man, it, right? So we, we might change the words a little bit. He's saying, don't, if you're smart, if you're intellectual, don't boast in your intelligence. If you're strong and mighty, don't boast in your strength. If, if you are wealthy and rich, don't boast in your riches. And so he continues. He, he says, this is what the Lord says. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Boast that you know God. Because of Christ, you can boast and say, I know God. I know who he is. I know that he is, yes, holy and just, but also loving and gracious that he is the creator, the sustainer, the ruler, the judge, and my father. This is what gives us privilege in this life and in this world. We are the most privileged here because we know God. Because of what Christ has done, we believe and put our faith in him so we can know God and have that great personal relationship. And when Paul preached this, and he spoke of the resurrection, some mocked him. Some would mock us today, proclaiming that Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead. Some said, we'll hear you out again. And only a few believed and followed. True is the same today. We will encounter many people and when we begin telling them the knowledge of God, some will mock us, some will want to hear more and others will have their hearts open to believing. But we know what the crown jewel is so we don't have to hide it. We can show it off. We can boast in it. This is who God is. And you can know him too. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you loved us even in the midst of our rebellion and sin, that you would send Jesus to die for us, redeeming us, so that we may be adopted as your sons and daughters. Lord, we give you thanks that this salvation has brought us to where we can be close to you. May you give us a desire in our heart to work on that relationship with you, not so that we just know about you and of you, but so that 
we want to be with you and hear your word daily in our lives. May we be ready to reflect, to live, and to speak to the crown jewel of the gospel because you are robust, O God, majestic and holy, loving and gracious. And we are in awe that you found us worthy enough to give us eternal life so we might spend all of our days glorifying you and enjoying you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.